0: I think most people do not realize the cost of doing business and particularly when there's brands, you know, that will speak to the fact that, wow, you know, beauty has all these big margins and now we've cut out the middleman and we can really give you the margin and you're going to save all this. And no, none of that is true. You know, somewhere along the way, you're going to, you're going to pay. Why can't beauty be an artistic product? Why can't beauty be a collectible, an object of desire that is going to appreciate in time? Why can't it be?
1: Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los Angeles. Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We Ooh. hope you stay a while. Cute. That's cute. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, we've got a Sephora icon, a big deal on the pod. El Jefe, the main El- woman in charge for a very, very long time. How do you say queen? Oh, La Reina. La Reina. La Reina. The queen. La Reina.
2: Oh, See, my Spanish fails me. So Margarita Ariagada was the chief merchant at Sephora for many, many years. A lot of people that you know and love brands, you know and love to this day consider Margarita their fairy godmother. Amy Lou from Tower 28 is one of them. Michelle Ronovat of Ronovat is another one of them. Both are sold at Sephora.
1: I mean, she was at Sephora for 18
2: years. Before Sephora became a force.
1: Yeah, like she helped put Sephora on the map. She helped introduce Sephora to the United States. I mean, that's major. And then before that, she was at Macy's for a really long time, but all in retail, right? And then during the pandemic, she decided to launch her own brand called Valde Beauty, and she makes... Some of the most stunning lipsticks I have ever seen. We learned a lot. She has a lot of experience, like Kirby and I have mentioned, and uh, has a lot of opinions and...
2: Interesting takes. Interesting takes. Interesting takes. takes. There you go. Interesting takes. It's an agree to disagree moment, but she is also an expert, so we wanted her to share her truth (laughs) on a few things. I actually think this is kind of relevant for Sustainability Month. You know, April is like Earth Month, and... We talked about how we're not really sharing recommendations because we don't want people to feel like they have to go out and buy anything. Valde, Sarah's actually, I think, mentioned it on the podcast before as a gift because it is expensive. It's like a a lipstick with a quote unquote armor that goes on top. It's very heavy, very beautifully designed. It's like a piece of art in a way. And they're expensive. I mean, the set altogether is $199, but I think Margarita will speak to this and that she's hoping that. Instead of just buying something for the sake of buying it and spending more and more money and then throwing it away, she wanted to create something that people would keep forever in a sense. So Sarah, anything else you want to add?
1: No, I would love to hear what everyone's takes are after if they agree or if they understand you know i know we have a lot of people in the industry too Mm -hmm. who also have experience on the retail side but obviously we have a lot of consumers and so i would just love to hear if you agree with margarita's takes or if you have any other questions too yeah let's start a conversation around this Margarita
2: Margarita. Okay, let me tell you, we didn't have margaritas when I saw you for the first time, but we did have a nice (laughs) cup of coffee. And I was getting margarita to spill all the tea. I was like, (laughs) I need to know the ins and outs. I need you to tell me what I don't know. Give me some sustenance here. And boy, did she deliver. I feel like your career in general, people just need to sit down with you and talk with you for an hour. They will learn so much about the business, how it works. Like a true beauty veteran. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes. How a brand is made or broken at this (laughs) point. I mean, there's just so much to consider and so many things that only you with your experience and level in the industry would know. And like as a woman of color too, there's like a whole spectrum of things that we can touch on. So we are thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm
0: so happy to be with you too. Some of my favorite podcaster, you guys are incredible and so much appreciate all that you do and you put out there.
1: Oh, thank you, Margarita. The pleasure is truly all ours. So Margarita and I got to do a little Zoom pandemic meeting which is not as great as in person over coffee and cocktails but after kirby met with you she literally texted me and was like oh my god you need to meet margarita and we need to get margarita on the pod stat thank you
0: thank you for having me super humbled of course
1: margarita we start every episode with a question called what's on your face so we want to know what products are you currently obsessed with
0: Okay, I wasn't expecting this, so ironically today, (laughs) I am wearing a foundation, a beloved old foundation. You know, I'm always trying new foundations, as I'm sure you are, and there's been some great ones that I've launched recently that I've loved, and today I thought, you know, I purposely looked at it and I thought, I'm going to give this product a little love, (laughs) just like that. It's the um, Tarte Amazonian Clay Foundation, which has been a diehard love, love, love. So I'm wearing that. I'm also wearing Tower 28's Cream Blush, which, you know, I put on my lips. I put on my blush. I am trying out a new mascara, actually, But I think the mascara I grabbed, you know, really, really quickly. I think that the two products that I just, you know, intentionally put on that I love from a makeup perspective is the Tarte Amazonian Clay and the Tower 28 Blush. From a skincare perspective, I'm trying out this Beautiful brand, close dear friend, a brand founder, which is Olga Lorenzen. Oh, we love her. And she launched this eye cream, which is kind of a combination of an eye primer. And an eye cream, which I thought was super, super brilliant. And I remember thinking through it and putting it on going, okay, let's see if this really works. I'm going to put on a little shadow. Let's see if it really works. And it does. And it's such a great experience on the eye because I think it like really even, you know, covers the wrinkles a little bit. It's just really, really good. That's my shout out to some of the most intentional products. Obviously, I have a lot more on, but these are the ones that I thought today that it's always applying. I was really thinking through it. I love that. And intentional. Yes. Intentional.
1: It was intentional. We love Tower 28 and we love Olga. I need to try that eye cream, eye primer.
0: Yeah. I mean, her products are amazing. She is the best kept secret out there, I think. Agreed. You are here because we want to know everything
1: about you. So do our listeners. So let's start back from when Margarita was a little girl. Tell us about your upbringing and how you got into beauty. What were your influences?
0: You know, I never had intention to get into beauty. So I'll just say that. I was not an overly makeup and or a beauty person. My influences are retail. I started on the retail selling floor. I don't think too many people know this, but my first job on the retail selling floor while I was going to school, I'm an original alumni of the uh, Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, and I was selling on the retail floor, and my first job as a part-timer was in the Clinique counter, and I didn't have a great experience. I thought it was great with the customers, but everybody was on commission. I was a part-timer, and I was doing well, yet I was moved from the area, and I thought, why? You know, HR moved me to fashion or something. And I thought, why? I thought I did a great job. And they said, oh, well, you're taking sales away from the commission people. And I think from very early on, I just had that thing in my head. And so I grew up on the retail selling floor. I was a buyer, assistant manager, assistant divisional, whatever. And I covered a lot of different areas from fashion to accessories to the home area. And I never had interest in, in cosmetics. It just didn't feel like a warm, inviting kind of an area. I was very competitive. That's how I experienced it from being a retailer. And I continued. My journey. I spent about 20 years, almost 20 years in Macy's, to be frank, and as a buyer in fashion and in the home area and divisional merchandise manager. I spent 10 years on the brand side working for a Spanish firm. And when I resigned, I was on my way back from New York to LA and out came from the flight that was just landing the CEO at the time of Sephora, who I had worked with 10 or 15 years prior. And it was sort of a serendipitous type of a moment. He had an opening for a head of color cosmetics. And he said to me, you know, he called me, he said the light bulb moment, you know, went out and he called me and he said, hey, how would you like to consider, you know, working for Sephora? And I actually didn't want to work for Sephora. So all that to say, that's sort of how I entered it. But it wasn't anything that I had ever aspired to or was interested in, in entering the space.
2: Which I think is interesting. I
0: think it's interesting
2: because you don't have to necessarily have a passion for beauty to be involved in beauty in some aspect. I think like anybody listening may think, I'm interested in beauty, but I have like no background in it. So how am I supposed to get there? Mm-hmm. I think this is a very
0: prime example of that, like your skills can carry over. Amen. I actually pushed back a lot. I didn't want to join Sephora. I did not want to relocate to San Francisco. I don't know how I got the job to be perfectly honest. I didn't love retail at the time in general. And that's the reason I was on the brand side. I love being on the brand side. But the reality was, is I think that that common thread was that I was super passionate about the consumer experience because I had grown up on the retail selling floor. And the CEO wisely enough said, and and by the way, I didn't see myself in Sephora. As a woman of color, I couldn't relate to the concept. And so I thought, how can I impact? How can I lead in this role if I don't relate to it at all? And he said, you know, the magic words were, you know, come on in and fix it and, you know, and help influence what you think needs to happen. And I still pushed back. I thought, I don't have any cosmetic experience. And the guy would say, you know, well, you wear makeup, don't you? And, <laughs> you know, and you understand retail. And so, you know, that for me, in, you know, in hindsight, I think what helped me thrive at Sephora was the fact that I didn't have beauty experience, to be perfectly honest. I didn't come with, with that conventional wisdom on here's how things need to be and in. And I think Sephora at the time was looking for someone that could, you know, be an entrepreneur and think differently and think a little out of the box.
1: Margarita, can you share like when this was in time, like how long ago? Cause I'm just trying to think of like Sephora back when ever this was, you know?
0: Yeah. So I joined after year three when they entered in the U S so I think maybe they had 50 stores That's all they had or 25, 50 stores. I mean, I could visit them mall. <laughs> when I joined, we were figuring things out. We were just trying to get product. You know, the issues we had were all operational, logistics, let's get product into the store. So people absolutely, you know, were flocking to the environment. We didn't have enough brands. It was at that moment, certainly no vision and strategy, you know, at all whatsoever. And so it was at the very beginning. What
2: timeline is that though? Like our listeners are like, was this 2010? Was this 2000? Was this 1990? Early 2004. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember my cousin getting a Sephora gift card. I remember I saw her doing her face with something that had like tea tree oil in it or something. And I'm like, Where, what is that? And She's like, Oh my god, there's a store. And it's all beauty. There's nothing else in there. It's just beauty. And I was like, clutching my pearls. There was like a Dior (laughs) moisturizer that was like this liquidy moisturizer. It was like in a, like a bluish bottle. And I, I remember I saved up like all of my money just to buy this. My mom's like, you do not need this. You are not, you're literally like 13 years old. What are, what the hell are you doing?
1: (laughs) That's so funny. I remember I had taken a trip, family like vacation to Europe and like remembered walking into a Sephora being like, what is this? And then when they started launching in the States, I was like, this is everything. Especially like 2004. That was like, you know, when Kirby and I were just graduating high school around that time. So this is when we had like our own money. We're really like uh, trying to figure out our identity and self-expression through makeup. So Sephora just had like such a pivotal place in, during that time in our lives.
0: Amen. Amen. For so many. And now...
2: There's so many Sephoras, but at the time, there was only one Sephora near me. It was at the Arboretum, I believe, in Austin, Texas, or maybe it was at the big mall in like central Austin. But like, (laughs) I remember like having to trek 30 to 45 minutes just to get there and then being like, okay, strategy, what do I need to get? I need to get this thing that Lizzie McGuire wears or, you know, whatever. (laughs) So okay, you worked at Sephora. And I mean, you didn't just work at Sephora, like you were at the top, the creme de la creme of Sephora, you were the chief merchant. So for those that are listening, who are curious about what a chief merchant is, and what that role entails, you know, I'm curious, what impact did you have at the company in that role? Like, let's talk about like some of the things that you developed and brought on maybe brands, because when I was interviewing founders for Allure's they had this I guess series you could say called Beauty Break and it was like what was your big beauty break and so many of the people I interviewed were like name dropping you in some capacity like oh do you Aww. know Margarita do you know Margarita Aww. one of them being Amy Lou, founder of Tower Aww. 28 so she's obviously heavily impacted by you the brand was heavily impacted by you um tell us more like this is the hype yourself up moment I want to know like <laughs> Tell us everything.
0: I've done good at hyping myself up. I will say I'm still working on it, but I'm happy to share a little bit of my journey and, and what I did. I will say at the beginning, I was the head of Color Cosmetics. And I love that. I absolutely love that. I was eventually promoted to senior vice president of merchandising, where I had responsibility over planning as well, forecasting and planning. And then it was really only in the last few years that I was there. I left in 2015, where I became um, chief merchant. And so my role at the beginning was very much initially in color, was very much the development of of the brands. We took on baby brands. (laughs) Some were shipping out of their own, you know, home. And so I think that's what a lot of founders remember, that we were just such strong partners on let's figure this thing out together because we barely understood you know, what was happening with Sephora and we wanted to make sure that we could take our brand partners along with it. So I think that that established a really strong foundation for the culture of what a brand partnership looks like. I mean, we would do p ls together. We would help find the resources, the people, the talent. I mean, whatever their ailments were for the brands, we were the partners, like investors, you know, the marketing, the product development ideas. And so it helped to establish, you know, these small little see brands, you know, like two Faced, you know, really, really small into, whoa, okay, we, we've got it. Two-Face being a small brand. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's small, small. And, And we learned together. It was like sort of, you know, going to school and going to university. We understood, you know, the business aspect. And there we established a model of what a brand development formula looked like at Sephora and we we scale that and we leverage that. But from a bigger picture perspective, you know, my role was very much initially it was lock, stock, and barrel with the merchants and the brands. And then it got bigger, and as it got bigger, and um, and as it got more competitive, my role became more of a compass. I always was very consumer centric. I spent probably every single week, which by the way I still do. I spend every week in stores. There isn't a weekend I'm not in stores. And so I I was responsible for that future vision and strategy and creating that roadmap for the merchandising organization for both product and brands, but that could serve the customer and really, honestly, the brand community. So now it wasn't just about, okay, here's this brand that we're nurturing along. Now it's the community. How do we lead and guide, you know, where is Sephora going? What's important to us? That's going to take a few years for them to really prepare for the cross functional teams you know internally what do we think it's important what's you know what is the company going to stand for and how do we get everyone you know to come with us and so understanding that that was at the end the primary function of my role as well as working cross functionally with the other regions globally in order to establish more of a harmony and you know and best practices on you know what everybody is doing best that. (laughs) Just a little bit of a brief overview.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. So, you know, Kirby and I have had the pleasure of, you know, interviewing people from like retailers and brands, but we are, you know, consumers and so many of our listeners are. There are things that we don't understand that brands have to deal with when it comes to retail. There's a lot of complaining that might happen in the comment sections on Instagram, people getting mad at brands for certain things. What do you think is the hardest thing that brands have to deal with when it comes to the retail experience, whether that's like what retailer to choose, or like I said, the things that we might not know. Can you explain to us consumers what those annoyances or just like difficult challenges might be?
0: Uh, Listen, I, you know, to oversimplify, I think that being a beauty brand Every aspect that goes into the creation of the brand is complex. It looks, you know, glamorous and, you know, and seamless, but it's all complex. Probably one of the biggest misconceptions from a consumer aspect is the margins. I think most people do not realize the cost of doing business. And particularly when there's brands, you know, that will speak to the fact that Wow, you know, beauty has all these big margins and now we've cut out the middleman and we can really give you the margin and you're going to save all this. And no, none of that is true. You know, somewhere along the way, you're going to you're going to pay. It costs a lot of money to do business in beauty, particularly if you're with a retailer major amount of money. And so I think that that is a huge misconception. You know, it is extremely complex and very, very costly. And the second thing that I am not sure that as an industry and as consumers, particularly as of late, do we have enough appreciation and perspective what goes in into the development of product? I don't think we realize that even a $10 product, even a $10 retail product, sometimes it took years into the making, huge amount of investment that are not reflected in the retail price of the product that are, you know, reflected in R&D or another cost line items. And so Right now, we're living a moment of a lot of promotional activity, which I think is devaluating, you know, the industry overall, and and it is taking away from the appreciation of what goes in into product development, It is a super intensive product, a lot of committee, a lot of manufacturers, packaging, design, creativity, lab tests, trials, shade matching, years, just, you know, different models. And then you have something, you know, that I think we take for granted. What do you mean by promotional activity? The discounting that is so prevalent in beauty is now taken away from me personally, humbly. I think it's devaluating the entire industry. Interesting. So are you saying like the big sales or like the
2: buy one, get ones? Like
0: All of it. All of it. All of it. Yeah. Both from brands and from retailers. I mean, beauty is, and then that's the reason for me to create a brand I need I wanted to establish a point of view that says you don't have to give it away beauty it has so much intrinsic value I mean just look at what it does for our confidence right you know for me for my mom you know she had dementia and she she didn't remember me but she never forgot how lipstick made her feel And so, no, you don't need to give it away. It already has so much value, but because A, B, or C reasons, it is now in the promotional discounting state that fashion was upon a time, and we know what happened with fashion, right? And so I think that that is taken away from the storytelling and the narrative and what goes on to the creation of a beauty brand. Don't you think, though, that part of that discount
2: promotional activity has to do with the fact that there are so many beauty brands and that retailers are contributing to that? I talked to a lot of founders from time to time that say, yeah, we signed on to be a part of this retailer and the demands that we are required to in terms of making products to fulfill certain visions that they have or forecasts that they have, it's adding to that conversation. But at the same time, it may not necessarily be a product that's needed or innovative.
0: Actually, no, I don't. Okay. I am all just acutely familiar as to the evolution of this in discounting promotional activity, because under my watch, I try really, really hard to keep it in check up until the time that I was at Sephora. I do think a loyal customer needs to be able to have a value add. I'm a huge advocate of adding value to the customer, not throwing it away. So, no, I think that the evolution happened from retailers. They were opportunistic. You have to remember that most retailers are public company, and they have to answer to, you know, stockholders and shareholders. And so to the extent that something is array, you know, the easier thing to do to grow sales is to throw in a discount, which then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You have to anniversary that. And to the extent that the brand community allows that to happen, you have now a competitive situation. And so that is really what mushroomed this situation. And it's become now the motive operandus. But the irony is, is that we're living a moment right now in which costs are going up. And I just told you what the margins are. You know, they're they're, they're high because the cost of doing business is really, really super high. Yet at the same time, we're discounting. And so it just, you know, for me, it's insanity. <laughs> quite frankly. But it, t- it takes a lot of courage. And I've been there, right? It takes courage to be able to push back. What it means is that you have to work harder, both as a brand, as a retailer, you have to work harder. You have to be more imaginative and figure out how do I add value to my customer independent of price? Because ultimately you're devaluating your own product. You know, I think that's a rare trait, particularly when you're now fighting You know a tsunami of you know of a landscape that is moving in the opposite direction wait okay sarah i
2: know we have like three other questions here that we need to hit but like this just keeps sparking more questions for me so then (laughs) margarita what is the state of the beauty union like in your opinion right now how do you see the beauty industry as a whole where are we headed What are some things, you know, outside
0: of these promotional activities that needs to change? I think at the moment, the industry, it is super saturated, and I don't think it's a great moment. Not to say there are not a lot of great brands, but it's the moment, right? It's very opportunistic, you know, it definitely is going down the path of, hey, I have a following, I'm gonna monetize it, you know, whoever I am, a way of doing business, which is creating a, just a, you know a big onslaught, and some of them may be okay. I want to preface by saying some of it may be okay, but it's just like you know, it's just a major tsunami of brands, which is creating a lot of saturation, it's very hard to keep up with, and devaluating the industry. Not to say you won't have growth. I mean, if you push enough out there there's growth but there's not enough of a pull and with it what's happening is that we're less imaginative we're less creative because we have this talent that we're aligning a brand you know around With less authenticity, less imagination and and creativity. Now, there may be some movements, you know, there may be the sustainable movement or there may be the clean movement, all these things that are creating interest, you know, to the beauty industry. I mean, the beauty industry is a very resilient industry, so I think it will always do well. But for me, for your question, the state of the industry for me is disappointing, which is the reason I launched my brand.
1: Being Latina, being a woman of color, working in beauty, you mentioned your mother and, you know, how lipstick made her feel or when she would wear it, the confidence. Can you share with us, like, how growing up Latina influenced Valde and and starting a brand?
0: Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that question. The brand is an homage to my mom, who is an immigrant. I was born in Lima, Peru, South America, and I came to the United States when I was 12. And she left an aristocratic family. She left my dad in search of an environment that will allow her to be herself. And I watched her give up that comfort, and she literally ran away. My father, not knowing where she was for years, you know, in search of finding the right environment. But I watched her not having worked a day in her life, you know, knock on doors you know, to find work, you know, carry three jobs, four jobs, you know, do whatever is possible. But at the same time, I watched the transformation of her stepping in and being comfortable in her skin and thriving. And someone that was super humble, yet looked rich, you know, she just she just was magnetic in her personality out of her happiness and confidence of who she was. And so I think that story and that narrative of, you know, being confident in your skin and being your authentic self, I think resonated for me a lot. When I launched the brand, I launched it primarily as an homage because lipstick was armored to her. And then I realized, you know, during the creation of my brand, all the insecurities, that I had, I think, suppressed for so, so, so long, and that I had really leaned on my role to help me be more confident. And here I was, you know, creating a brand that was an homage to her, an homage to women being your authentic self. And I, quite frankly, wasn't being my authentic self. So, you know, in that process, in that journey, this brand creation really... Evolved into my own journey and my own voice and, and narrative on being myself. And one aspect of that is that I never fully manifested me being Latina. I certainly had a point of view. I mean, when I joined Sephora, I, you know, I didn't see myself in it. And you know, one of the first things, first reason is it wasn't a diverse culture. The representation, the marketing representation, wasn't diverse, and I had. Visited a lot of stores before I joined them to see if I could be, you know, foundation, color matched, and no one could match me, nor didn't even know how to approach me. You know, the conversation around undertones was just not even there. And so I certainly think from the get-go started to influence the assortment and the education and the diversity of the cast members, you know, so that we could relate that was the beginning, and at that time, there was a lot of passion from the Black community on unhappy representation, and I was desperate desperate to find, you know, a brand that we could launch, you know, that could do justice and that, you know, people, the customers, you know, could get behind in the Sephora environment and, you know, and see themselves in there. And that that first brand was Carol's Daughter. And so that definitely was there throughout. And yet at the same time, yes, I exercised my point of view and perspective from being a Latina, but I myself was not very Latina because, you know, I wanted to fit in. And I didn't want to be judged, you know, by my skin color, which, you know, frankly, is is a challenge still today. And so in the creation of my brand, I created it certainly to manifest this homage to my mom, to women, our inner strength, but also to express a point of view. It's a platform for me to express a point of view that says... You know we don't have enough women of color, women in beauty leadership, considering how we over-index from a consumption standpoint. You know there's a lot of women that are lieutenants. I certainly was a second, you know, in charge on that executive board, but not the person in charge. You know, in beauty we do not over-index in having a seat at the head of the table. You know there's a lot of women that are supporting men, but we're not the final key decision makers, and we need to be. And I feel. Really really super passionate about that because I've lived it and so I know I know the pushback I know the limitations and I know that a lot of the solutions in the beauty industry are not being exercised because we're not the final decision makers and the other aspect is, is inclusivity. And I am now, you know, fully embracing my Latina culture. It is embedded in, into my brand. And I'm trying as hard as I can to to support and be a voice for our community to the extent that I'm establishing, a, you know, a fund, a grant to be able to help Latina, Latinx beauty entrepreneurs. Was there like a specific moment where you
1: were like, I am proud to be a Latina woman, and I really appreciate you just walking us through your journey because I feel like similarly, like a struggle with the same thing being, you know, Asian American. It's not like my entire life. I was super proud of my background, but I would love to hear if there was like a moment, maybe it was even like you said, after you launched Valde, someone said something to you or, you know, you saw your customers like, you know, really just embracing and celebrating being Latina through your, your lipstick, like what moment was that?
0: I mean, I've always been proud of being Latina and I live a dual life. I'm I'm Peruvian and everything outside of nine to five is Peruvian. And so I've always been super proud, but I never expressed that pride. You know, I never celebrated it, you know, within my, my work environment. It did not envelop who I was, and that's what I think was a major disappointment, even though I might have expressed a point of view in terms of the business opportunity, I didn't express it enough and what I could have potentially have, have influenced and have it be more of myself. I certainly think that once I started branding, the brand identity of my brand and what I wanted it to be as was the beginning of that manifestation, the name Valdeh, is the first part of my mother's last name, Valdelamar, which is the Latin word for very. That Val de Lamar last name is very prevalent in my country because my grandfather's brother is a famous poet and is in the history of our country. He's embedded in our, in our culture. And so that was the first aspect of me manifesting it and, and then beginning to manifest it in you know, my social and my content and celebrating you know, my roots. And then finally, when I launched, the Latina community embraced me. And that was a pivotal moment for me. That They were just so proud. Here was, you know, a woman in the luxury market, no less, you know, with a luxury brand that I just, you know, I felt that love. And I thought, you know, (laughs) you know, where have I been? Okay. So speaking of
2: Valde, you launched the Valde system lip set and it is $199. And you did this during the pandemic. <laughs> I have here, that's a huge risk. Some people are like, you're crazy woman. What are you thinking? This is wild times. But you did touch on the idea of creating something that has value and I think this kind of leans into your discussion of, you know, if you're purchasing something with intention, right, you're less likely to keep buying more and more and more things that are unnecessary, because you have something that is meaningful and and provides value to you. For me, Valde is part art, part cosmetic. So why do you think Valde Outside of the story, outside of, you know, the meaning behind the brand, what separates it from everything else that's out there already?
0: Yeah, thanks for, for that question. That was so, 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 so scary. Scariest thing I've ever done in my life to launch a one, $199, $200 product in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody's wearing a mask. Um, <laughs> you know, there lies the, the courage and opportunity. My concept... Is about the intrinsic value. It's exactly what you said. It happens to be artistic. It happens to be functional, but it is so much more about this emotional connection, catalyst, if you will, that if you're receiving it, there's something, there's an emotion you're going to have either because you've purchased it for yourself or because somebody gave it to you. That connection is going to be deeper. And there lies the value, right? You can't put your finger on it and you can't touch it. It's intrinsic. And I felt that beauty was worthy of it. Not only do I think that women are worthy, but I felt that beauty is worth it, right? It's everything I just finished saying earlier. Why can't beauty be an artistic product? Why can't beauty be a collectible, an object of desire that is going to appreciate in time? Why can't it be? And, you know, ironically, after I launched it and once I overcame that fear You know, I have now further leaned into it, and it's you know, as you guys might know, I launched a project, an NFT project at twelve hundred dollars, not two hundred, at twelve hundred dollars, because I think it's something that needs to be represented and needs to be done, and it is the antithesis of commoditization. So let's
2: talk about it, Sarah. Sarah, yeah, because yeah, we're a little.
1: Our listeners know that when it comes to the metaverse, Kirby and I are still like trying to wrap our heads around it. We get that it's like important, but we just like, we can't get it. We don't get it.
2: We're the meme of of, like that woman that's like looking from side to side and there's all those numbers floating around. Yeah, we're like, we don't, we don't know.
1: I'm actually really upset that I wasn't able to attend this event because I was like, this is like how I'm going to like learn. So you had this event in Decentraland, in the metaverse, to launch this NFT. So can you explain to us like the decision-making behind that and why you think it's important for beauty to be a part of the metaverse?
0: Yeah. For me, it was a journey, both the NFT journey and the metaverse journey, right? Two separate things that all are born from this crypto world. I initially started the journey via the NFT exploration because I knew I was going to make a product that was a limited edition. It was numbered and it was going to need a certificate of authenticity. And so somewhere along the way, very early on, I read one of the definitions of an NFT, a non-fungible token, was that it's a digital. It's like a digital certificate of authenticity that will live in perpetuity. And so I went, Okay, that makes sense. And that's when I went down the rabbit hole and trying to figure out how do I do this, that I sort of immersed in that NFT space, which took a long time, you know, over nine months. And then when I went to launch it, I was going to launch it on my website, realize, okay, no, it's an NFT. And you kind of have to pay, you know, with crypto and how, what does that look like? which was a very complex process. But what solidified in my mind beyond NFT on my brand manifesting being more of a purpose-driven brand was the launch of the World of Women project. When I experienced a World of Women project, and I understood, you know, (laughs) I'm all about women. And when I understood that this project that happened to be NFTs, PFPs, so profile picture and NFTs that had more purpose and intention and give back and supporting and lifting up women, that for me solidified my intention in this space. And it happened that World of Women had launched their gallery in Decentraland. And here I was following, you know, a World of Women. And I thought, God, wouldn't it be cool if I could have my event in this space? And there lied my opportunity on venturing into what does the metaverse look like? What does Decentraland look like? And once I experienced it, I understood that I think I'm one of those individuals that was super underwhelmed when the Internet launched and, you know, we're now in the Web 3 and still in Web 2 was somewhat underwhelmed, you know, feeling that there was more opportunity. So I'm one of those individuals that whose time has come for this metaverse Manifestation of more immersive virtual reality or you know 3D reality experiences, and so I could envision immediately how that could take place. And they were gracious enough to allow me to use that space. So for me, it was just you know divine timing. But I'm very bullish on all NFT and um, future metaverse. And it was a it was a fun event. I wish you could have joined. It was a fun event. We had. 500 people, we had a DJ, we danced, we showed the beauty editors, you know, how to dance and how to navigate the space, you know, how to create their avatar. For me, it's extremely exciting. Oh my gosh, what does your avatar look like? It doesn't look as wonderful as I'd love for it to look, but I'm working on it. (laughs) Because, you know, you get your basic wearables, quote unquote wearables, when you enter these lands like Decentraland. But then you can buy in their boutiques, you can buy additional wearables with a specific currency. And so actually, there is a, a big shout out, there's a major um, runway show uh, event happening the biggest uh, this coming Thursday. And so I'm in the process today, actually, of investing in more wearables to look a little bit more um, um, exciting for the event. <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) To wrap things up, we'd love to know what
2: consumer trends you see happening for the beauty industry in either the next year, the next few years. Like, right now, I think that we are going hard on clean and sustainable, probably more so clean, sustainable is getting there. And then just a lot of talk about ingredients, like people are obsessed with ingredients. What do you see changing? What do you think going to remain a constant is there a particular type of product you think we're going to see more of i would love to hear your thoughts
0: well i think clean and sustainable will be ticket to play period so i don't think that'll ever go away i don't think that the wellness movement will go away which you know we're living on right now and you know you can look at the trends you know in different ways one of them is you know what's the macro environment and you know what will drive some of the micro aspect so you know the macro definitely is is that you know we're living through uncertain times and that by the way will fuel these metaverse and so i do think that even though the metaverse nft crypto is not a trend you know it's game changing <clears throat> it'll influence how we do business. It will influence the trends that we will see even manifested in beauty very much the way you saw the social media movement. Right. I think that the, you know, much of the NFTs will be a new, you know, be a new way of social commerce and social currency because we will, the anticipation is that a few years from now, we will spend a lot of time there and it'll be a way to signal. And that will give you opportunities from innovation on artificial intelligence, et cetera. That's much of the macro in addition to the, you know, difficult, situations that we're experiencing around the world today. Leading from that, you know, I think leading from that wellness movement, for me, super important is the topic of inclusivity. I don't think we have tapped the potential on inclusivity. You know, it's not just about women of color, but it's inclusivity in every single way, shape or form, you know, generational and, you know, and people with handicap that, and even a women of color and the, iteration of that, we have no idea what that potentially could be like. And it's an amazing, major, major opportunity. I don't think you'll see the industry driving it. I think you'll see it from the bottom up. You know, I think you'll see people just surfacing and rising and beauty founders, that are, you know, will disrupt that narrative. And then another one that I think is near and dear to, to my heart, which I think is very major, is the aspect of mental well-being, which is a subset from well. This, but I think it could potentially just even overtake the wellness movement. And again, I, I don't think that we realize how that will manifest itself. But I think things that we thought were maybe unconventional um, in terms of products that we would carry in stores or products that we would, you know, that we would create from a mental well being you know, standpoint, you know, a la Moon Juice, you know, 10 times higher, are going to be super, super important. I think that the narrative, I think that the cultures, you know, within the organizations, whether you're a brand or a retailer, are super, super important and connecting all the dots, right? I think what, what's missing is we're not stepping back and understanding the macro enough to really understand how the micro can, can make sense. But those are just, you know, generally some important things for me that as I think about the future that I think are just really, really ripe. And throughout it all, you know, I would say women, sprinkle through all that, all things women, because, you know, if you think about women that you understand the sexual, wealth, you know, wellness movement that we're going through that, you know, if you think about inclusivity that, you know, you understand, you know, why some of the you know, women of color brands or Latina brands, you know, that are rising to the top. You have to understand the the macro. The future is female.
2: <laughs> We're going to get into our slow burn round. What is a brand that you helped launch that is still as great
0: today as when it launched? Oh, Anastasia Beverly Hills. By the way, it was the first brand that I ever launched First brand that I launched at Sephora. Um, certainly Anastasia was in the service business at Nordstrom, but I think we helped influence her into the product category. So it was the first brand that I actually launched and uh, it's still thriving today. We just
1: had her on too. So it's amazing. Love her. Favorite discontinued brand?
0: Oh, <laughs> Mark Jacobs. Oh my God.
2: Margarita. It's upsetting. It's deeply upsetting.
1: Is there any way we can all chip in, bring it back?
0: Really? (laughs) Really? Really? I mean, should we get out the t-shirts and do a
2: campaign? Bring Mark Jacobs Beauty back. This is my question, though. Like, why, like, just straight up lie? Why just straight up lie and say that they're not being discontinued? I know that you don't know, but <laughs> Kendo really grinded my gears because they told me straight up, Mark Jacobs Beauty isn't going anywhere. It's just going to look different. And then meanwhile, it's like scrapped from the entire internet. It's now under the Mark Jacobs umbrella. No Mark Jacobs Beauty website. There was also no statement nothing. No statement. And I even gave them the opportunity because now I won't trust anything they will ever
0: say ever again. (laughs) Well, in their defense, even though I'm not associated with them, but it probably the Marc Jacobs brand is from Marc Jacobs. And so that quote probably needs to come from them as opposed to the Kendo team. That would make sense.
2: (laughs) You're forgiven Kendo. (laughs) But uh, Marc Jacobs, you need to accept
1: and deliver a formal statement.
0: Yes, yes, that I would say. We really just
1: want it back. That's all we want.
0: Amen, yeah, woo! Just bring it
2: freaking back. I literally am using a highlighter that's like five years old that should not be touching my
1: face. Oh my God, my bronzer. It's just, it's old, but I'm clutching onto it. One thing you cannot resist buying when you go beauty shopping, what is it?
0: I mean, I'm always a sucker for a complexion product, so I will always try a new foundation. I could be the Wikipedia foundations and concealers. <laughs> I could, yeah, I could open up a shop. I think I have them all. I will always try a new one. Does that mean Valdez gonna come out with some complexion?
1: No. no.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Absolutely not. No And listen and the reason I don't do lip, I mean I will try, I will always try lip product. I mean I love uh, you know Tower 28s you know juicy lips. I, you know I, I will, but I try not to angst myself with other lip products, right? because it's anxiety attack. There are just so many incredible products. And so I, I try not not to go there and I try to just if I'm gonna launch a formula, you know, I don't even overly do that competitive. list let just figure out, oh, you know, it's here, whatever. No, I just really try and immerse on my own and what will feel good. And from an expiration standpoint, what could be. But that is the reason why I don't over obsess on lip products as much as maybe a plumper, you know, maybe a plumper, you know, I, that I may always try to figure out, okay, does this one really deliver? But always complexion products. Okay. So then, what are your top
2: three favorite complexion products of all time?
0: Oh, listen, uh, oh my gosh! Well, I told you I love the um, the Tarte Amazonian Clay complexion. I'm a serum gal, and I, you know, I, you know, I know it's it's complexion for me. It's part of complexion. So you will always see me try oils. Always, you know, Saint Jane Beauty. I, you know, I try collagen from genius collagen you know from alginist and you know super super proud of having helped josie marin you know get that oil category out there with argan oil i mean that was my first entry into that experience and you know and look what i'm you know mega category it's so i will always try you know beautiful old serums to the point where I will, I'll avoid a moisturizer. But, you know, prepping that that complexion for me is is really important. And then I'm loving a lot of concealers. I love Anastasia's concealer. I think is you know, pretty epic. I used to love the, uh, the Tarte tape, whatever. Shape tape. Shape tape. I think Anastasia's is really, really great. And then I just tried the Hourglass, which I, I don't know if you've tried the Hourglass. It's amazing. Yeah, those are holy grail products for me. Awesome. Margarita, thank you so much for
2: joining us today. Please let our listeners know where they can find you and also Valde.
0: Thank you. So uh, Valdebeauty.com and um, at Valdebeauty is a handle for Instagram, Twitter.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: You guys are amazing. You made my day. Thank you so much. I love you dearly. Keep rocking it. Keep being hot and fearless.
1: All right, that's it. Thank you everyone for listening. We will be back on Tuesday with the week's most buzzy beauty news. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts
2: and follow us on Spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews. And if you want to
1: support us, be sure to follow us at Gloss Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group. Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts, I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E,
2: on all social platforms. Gloss Angeles was created by us, Kirby Johnson and Sarah Tan. It's part of the ACAST Network and licensed by Vice Media Group.